this episode, we have Professor Donna Geddes in the cauldron. Donna is the director of the Geddes Hartman Human Lactation Research Group based in Perth, Western Australia. And it's made up of innovative and dedicated scientists and students that have a passion for developing measurements of lactation and breastfeeding, and then applying them to make a difference to clinicians and breastfeeding families. The group makes a point of not only publishing their findings in scientific journals, but spreading their information via free online articles and social media on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Donna originates from a medical imaging background with an emphasis in ultrasound imaging. She has integrated this modality into many of the group's studies, providing a window to different physiological processes during lactation. If you have listened to our previous podcast where I have spoken about the, in quotes, discovery of the breast anatomy, this is Donna. She showed the world the true anatomy of the lactating breast and could visualize how milk ejection occurs through her ultrasound techniques. Her findings have attracted much international attention and she is often requested to speak at both international and national scientific meetings. She is the Secretary for the International Society for Research in Human Milk and Lactation. In this episode, Donna talks us through how she got to where she is now, applying her imaging skills to research breastfeeding women and human milk components. We look at how using a focus of studying women and babies who are struggling to breastfeed can assist their research in understanding some of the causes of breastfeeding problems, allowing the team to design good solutions for mothers and babies. We ask why breastfeeding is the poor cousin of maternity care. Donna tells us how geeky they are in the lab and how they particularly love nipple temperatures. We discuss low milk supply, nipple pain, and the tools and technology we currently use and what we could be seeing in the future to help us support these issues. Donna explains how the group are looking at a special probe which could be used in practice to identify if milk has come in or secretory activation occurred or if there is inflammation in the breast. She tells us how the group is looking at how to more accurately test milk volumes, in particular for those vulnerable mothers with infants in the neonatal unit. We tackle the controversial topic of test weighing and we look at deciphering whether lactation problem is with how the baby takes the milk or whether there is a milk supply issue and how important this is for practice. We also look at nipple pain and the use of nipple shields and we talk about how some babies have extremely high suck vacuum levels. For example, they have seen in their work that some babies' suction levels are double of what a pump can even apply. So we delve into this further and much, much more. So by now, you know the drill. Get the kettle on, put on your walking boots, maybe put the leash on the dog or your baby in the sling and settle in for another episode in the cauldron. I'm Katie James and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favorite podcast host. Just a sec, before we start on this epic episode, 
If you love the show and want more from Rachel and me, then head on over to our websites and check out all the courses, books, collectives a go-go. You'll find all the details and occasional discount deals on the old Instagram at The Midwife's Cauldron or, of course, in the show notes below. And if you really, really love the show, please consider two things, a single or a monthly donation over on Patreon or even buy me a coffee. And remember, that review you leave on your podcast host really makes a difference in who listens in. Thank you for your support. We just love having you bubbling away with us. So, I am going to say a huge welcome to you, Professor, Professor, <laughs> Professor Donna Geddes. Welcome to the cauldron. Excellent start, Katie. That is brilliant. Welcome. Thank you, Katie, and thank you, Rachel. Um, it's great to be here all the way from Australia. It's fabulous to have you with us. You have made a huge impact on my career and a huge impact on many well all I'm going to say all of lactation consultants in particular out there because the work that the Geddes Hartman Human Lactation Research Group do in the University of Western Australia has been phenomenal and profound like if you take any lactation breastfeeding textbook someone from your group not just someone but most people from your group take up probably half of the book it wasn't written without the research that's come out of your group. So we had to get you in the cauldron to tell us a bit more about what you've been doing over the years and what's going on now and what's really important. So that's why you're here. And we're so thrilled to have you. Thank you. Oh, thanks for um, inviting me into the cauldron, because that's how we treat our research, really. That's why you see it everywhere it's it takes a more holistic approach um, to examining lactation right from breast growth and pregnancy through to mature milk composition and weaning as well so um, that's kind of become a mainstay of ours and a framework around our research and therefore we tend to design our studies so that it doesn't just focus on one aspect so as you'll see, we combine lots of modalities right from ultrasound combined with intraoral vacuum measurements of the baby combined with the mother's milk production combined with tests that show how much milk baby takes and how well it drains the breast. Um, and then R markers, there's an exciting kind of area that we're looking at R components of the milk markers of the physiology of the breast, how well the breast is functioning, and can we use those to help inform lactation consultants, nurses, midwives, and mothers about the issues they may be experiencing and will that help us intervene in a better and more effective and efficient way for them? Fabulous. Yes, this is really a... It's it's one of its kind. It feels like I've never heard of a research facility that has such a variety going on, particularly in the, the medium or the theme of lactation and breastfeeding. It's just 
it's covering so many bases. Oh, it fascinates me. And there's so much. We could get you on probably every podcast. I think, Donna, you could have your own <laughs> podcast just for your research group. But can I ask you a question before we go down there? Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are? We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially, and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the global lactation clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. Oh, gosh. Well, that's really very serendipitous. So I um, was, I trained as a medical imaging technologist or a radiographer in lay terms, and I loved my job. I grew up in New Zealand and I trained in Dunedin, um, and then um, we had the depression we had to have, according to Prime Minister Paul Keating. And as a young 21-year-old, I immigrated to Perth, Western Australia, and I came at the worst possible time to get a job because all of the students were graduating. Um, but I eventually got a job at a small private hospital called St John of God in Belmont, and I had the opportunity to learn ultrasound, which is very hands-on, very visual and um, very uh, close to the patients, if you like, and you had to establish rapport. So I loved that. And I did three years' worth of training. Um, then I got asked to teach at Curtin University in my spare time. Uh, and I realised that I'm old enough not to have an official degree. So I thought that might be a good idea, since I'm a curious type, to go back to university and do something that will um, give me a better salary in the future. And yet here I end up in academia, which wasn't really the aim. So it's funny, I, most academics say that. <laughs> it sucks you in. It paid less medical imaging technologists and ultrasonographers, that's true. Um, but I get to do both in this job. I get to learn, I get to inform the world about what we do and hopefully make a difference whilst still doing ultrasound. So um, cut a long story short, I did a few circles and we did a lot of breast ultrasound 
uh, at the Mount Hospital and somebody said, oh, you should go and see Peter Hartman. Um, that would be a good idea. If you do a lot of that work, then this is right up your alley. So I went to one of his talks in Fremantle and there weren't a lot of people there and I kind of stolen a pass from a colleague so I didn't have to pay for the whole conference and, um, you know, there were lots of slides on breasts. There was Elle McPherson there. I thought, this is really interesting. So I kind of hid behind a palm and pounced him in the foyer and I introduced myself and said I was interested in, you know, going back to university and doing some sort of degree. So he asked me if I could look at blood flow and I said, yep, sure used to looking at crotters, uh, can you look at milk ejection? And I thought, what the is milk ejection? Um, at that stage, none of my friends had had babies. So I said, not sure. So um, basically I brought a friend in, I scanned her on the weekend and did it all wrong but still managed to see <laughs> milk ejection. Um, with ducts dilating. So that was quite exciting. So at that, that stage, mm. Peter managed to wangle me into the university because I didn't have a university degree. And he basically told me, do a postgrad diploma. Uh, you can see if you like doing research. I hadn't quite figured out I was doing research at that point. Uh, and then he said, and we can see if you're any good at it. <laughs> he went like you as well. <laughs> so that was my story. I used to get, I connected with the ABA, the Australian Breastfeeding Association. I went to groups. I got pregnant near the end of my postgrad dip. By then I would had scanned about 20 or 30 women and their babies in my spare time on the weekends, um, developing, looking at, uh, milk ejection and the ducts expanding and looking at blood flow. In hindsight, that was quite a large project. Yes. Um, yeah, and so I did reasonably well at that. Um, and then I was very lucky to be offered a PhD scholarship, which I would say was one of the, some of the best years of my academic life being a student. And if anyone thinks they're going to do that, make the most of it. Um, and that's where our course uh, expanded the work to look at the anatomy of the breast, which was, again, a bit fortuitous. When I went to his office, Peter's office, and I said, oh, the breast doesn't look like that on ultrasound, all the textbooks that I'm reading. Um, why do you think that is? Ever, the good supervisor said that's for you to work out. So, uh, and I got to do that. I got to look at milk ejection through breastfeeds with pumping uh, and explore the, the anatomy um, of breast whilst learning everything else. Um, and then I became a postdoc again. I'm very lucky to score a position here within the group, which I've learned a lot of these other modalities that we now combine into much more powerful studies, I believe, to discover normal mechanisms and then use that knowledge to see if we can understand why women are having problems. Um, and then I guess finally when Peter was retiring, um, I hadn't realised there had been some subliminal training going on 
for a number of years <laughs> and um, I was called into his office and he shut the door and I thought, oh, he's only done that a couple of times. I've either been in trouble or yeah. I've been um, told I shouldn't, for example, participate in studies within the group while I'm pregnant because, you know, you don't have to, which I totally ignored and made my students scan me and my babies <laughs> after that. Um, so I came out of that and he was retiring and he told me he'd like me to take over the group. And as I walked out, I thought, did he offer me the job or was this just a foregone conclusion? So I was lucky enough to transition into leading the group with his mentorship um, which really lasted until unfortunately he passed away. I'm losing track of the years now. It's just over a year ago. So that's been my journey. Never quite intended that way, but um, here I am. That's fantastic. It's I, We always like to find out, particularly people in academia, where their road has been. And there seems to be such a similar road of someone, of being kind of tricked into it. <laughs> um, and and someone's just kind of pulled these little strings and you're not yeah. really under the awareness of, oh, this is what I'm doing until you're in it. And then they're like, ta-da, yeah. you're with us. Yeah. yeah. Now do a yeah. PhD. We think we're so smart, really. But um, <laughs> no, I was quite happy doing what I was doing um, and so great. it was a big leap but I must say I've enjoyed it a lot more um, than perhaps I anticipated. Uh, it's great. Can you tell us because I, I feel very privileged I've been to your lab and it was just it was mind-blowing, actually, just because I'm a bit of a geek about it and go, oh, look at this. And I've heard you talk at conference and I heard Peter and the team and whether I was in the UK or when I moved to Australia. And to go to the lab was really awesome for me. But what was so impressive is a bit like you touched on was how you're investigating, you know, what's in the milk and using different methodologies. But also, can you just tell us about the the lab where you invite mothers and their babies to come in? Yes. So um, I we have a lab. It's situated in the university at the moment. We did have some lab space up at the hospital, um, but during COVID, one of the hospitals shut down. So we don't have that anymore, but we are associated with the NICU, as you know, the neonatal intensive care unit, of which one of my postdocs, Dr. Sharon Perella, is a neonatal nurse as well. So we have connections up there um, that we can talk a little bit about secretory activation and pump-dependent preterm women, some exciting data coming out um, prepped for publication we hope to submit. Um, so we have um, a lab on site. We actually have two rooms, um, and so we can operate two at once. And what we do have is duplicate systems that record ultrasound, the intraoral um, pressure of the baby's sucking, their suck-swallow breathe uh, patterns using um, RIP, and we also have centrifuges so we can uh, spin the milk and look at the cream in the milk, which tells us how 
empty the breast is. Um, we've since got um, some nice infrared cameras that we've used to look at the temperature of the breast and also how the baby attaches to the breast and pumping shields and what kind of compression happens with that. We also look at nipple temperature. We're fascinated. Talk about geeky <laughs> nipple temperatures being, you know, a big thing for us, hot, cold, you know, cold's no good. Um, it's a proxy for vasospasm and reduced blood supply. Warm's great. Um, so, you know, we can look at things like compression of the nipple by the baby when it's feeding and what it does to the nipple um, and also conversely look at pumping uh, and whether shields are too tight, things like that. Um, so we are now recruiting through Facebook. So we have moved into the digital age and we have lots of mothers coming in um as I, as I said, you know, we have them come into the room um, and it's a, it's a little bit of a running joke with me. We introduce ourselves, we ooh and ah over the babies, we usually fight to see which person in the team gets to hold the baby and if I'm there I now get first choice and they <laughs> usually help me on the ultrasound if I'm doing ultrasound. Um, and then we sit the mum down and ask her to take her top off. Classic. Uh, so, so we're on first name basis, so it's all good. Um, and really we wire her up with whatever we're using. We're either doing ultrasound. If it's breastfeeding, we'll tape a small tube through the breast to the nipple. Um, and we sometimes gear up the baby with all the suck, swallow, breathe. Um, equipment but it's all quite non-invasive um, and because we're doing skin to skin the mothers seem to be really comfortable we have we always offer you know ways of um shirts and things like that but I think um what's really clear is that if you're upfront and woman inviting lactating women or breastfeeding women women really seem to want to contribute contribute to our research they want to either make things better for other women um, or they come along because they want to get out of the house and they're not too concerned they want to contribute as well and then one of the big things is I think is a trade for us and our moms and babies is that they ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. so you know, when you talk about educating um, women, particularly women that sneak in with problems and don't tell us until they get in that they've got low supply or pain or anything like that, um, we sometimes become the last port of call, unfortunately, and that's just a symptom of how far we are um, with our yeah. clinical knowledge and scientific backing. So, um, yeah, so it, it's it's rife with oxytocin. Everyone gets a thrill yeah. when they're there with the mums and the babies. So it's not as serious as one might think in terms of that. And I hope you felt that, Katie. Oh, totally. That, that it's... Um, I wanted to leave my job nice and come and work with you guys. I was ready to move <laughs> from Melbourne to um, over to Perth and go, just please take me. I want to work in this clinic. It's awesome. I want to get back into research. Yeah. And, and mums... And mums tell other mums, and that's how we pretty much get our, our mums into our studies. What I really want to bring out as well is that 
Me and Rachel run this podcast and we have a, a huge variety of people that are listening. Um, and for me, and maybe I'm biased, but breastfeeding or the postnatal has always been the poor cousin and not as many people um, or not the same type of people are going to the breastfeeding or the lactation specific conferences, for example. So when when I go to breastfeeding lactation conferences, it's the same faces. It's great. Have a fabulous time. But sometimes I feel that the information of breastfeeding or lactation or the new changes in practice are kept within this kind of lactation circle and maybe are not always filtering down to the midwife who's trying to just cope with learning or keeping up to date with everything. It's difficult. And the doulas in in the postnatal area. How can we translate the research that the group is finding and or how are you able to do that and bring it into clinical practice for everybody? Yeah, so there's several ways that we're working on. I think for us, um, the first and foremost thing that we're trying to do within the group is, as you know, it's interdisciplinary and clinical input and mother input, which we get from our mothers in the studies. I think that is critical to make sure we're doing the right research. And by the very nature of that, those clinicians will start to talk about changes. And the second thing is we need to publish. I'm very keen on that because if it's open to everyone and it's available to everyone, um, that's important. The other thing we're doing is um, we've moved into uh, in with some early adapters or adaptogens is a new word I'm, I'm figuring out because it's behavioural as well. Um, and we're doing some fantastic work and piloting work of some of the work we're doing here in the clinic. So we have Dr Stuart Prosser, um, Dr Sharon Perella and Dr Marnie Rowan. Um, and they all work very closely. And so, for example, um, they all use our test by scales to measure milk production. So that is slowly becoming a big part of their practice where they think it's necessary. The scales are also in the breastfeeding centre um, up at the hospital. And it's interesting the way they have been used in practices sometimes not so much to confirm normal production, to perhaps convince some mothers that they may have low production. So it can be used uh, in both in both ways. Translation, um, we're working harder on that. So we you might have seen our inaugural conference uh, yes. for our, our emerging centre for human lactation research. Um, so trying to disseminate that information, particularly the science, as you say, and then use our clinical partners for the translations. So it's not just the science people trying to translate directly into practice. And the advantage of having um, partners such as Stuart and Sharon and Marnie is that some of that uh, translation is already being tested, uh, if you like, in 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 that. Um, we are going to also try and write more lay um, book style um, chapters. So, 
again, bringing clinicians together uh, with us to get, spread the word. What are some things that have really changed or should really change understanding and practice? There's a big list of those. Pick <laughs> your favourites. <laughs> We'll just go, have breakfast and keep you talking and I'll come back. <laughs> so I think, yeah, the fact that lactation is the poor cousin is a real problem and it's mm. it's evidenced by the lack of research, lack of funding to underpin evidence-based practice. So that leaves our clinicians in a difficult position using experience and I think, you know, the more I I look at how lactation support is disseminated, that if it's outside of the hospital, it tends to be solitary. It's not an interdisciplinary, there's no interdisciplinary interaction, if you like, sometimes. Mm. So I think bringing lactation into the fold, like you say, rather than being the poor cousin, it should really be part of the whole global picture. Um, And so I think initially, as you allude to, education, antenatal education is extremely poor and inconsistent information Mm. given to women in pregnancy. And what we are looking at and what we've developed and hope to publish soon as well is in antenatal risk screening tool. So that means for all midwives, nurses, um, they can talk to women about breastfeeding, but also fill in this very short tick list of things that might impact their lactation. So do they have any concerns? Obviously, they will be referred to a lactation consultant prior to giving birth. Um, pregnancy complications, GBM, we really know these women can have a lot of problems. We don't know which ones. That's what we're trying to figure out that might have problems with milk production and stay tuned because we've got lots of data coming. Um, but that importance, uh, what we've found, because that is standard practice at Stuart Cross's obstetric practice, is that women in terms of lactation are often told, well, just let's see how it happens. Mm-hmm. You should be okay. We'll wait and see. What they are finding clinically that if they have these conversations with the mothers, as you would with any pregnancy complication or issue that she might face at birth, those mothers do really well afterwards even if they can't make a full production. They know they've tried everything. They're prepared. They're prepared to express if they think they see the signs. So they're educated on the signs that I've heard you talk about in the podcast on enough poos, agitation, wheeze, you know, all of those in the early days so that they can either seek help or be prepared to intervene early. So typically that looks like it's supporting the well-being of mothers as well as um, allowing our clinicians to intervene and try and protect and boost milk production where it might be a problem. 
There's another thing I want to look at because it's really specific to the group. And there's there's two sort of at kind of at bedside or or tools that we could use in practice. And one of them is looking at um so let me paraphrase that. So we know that the sodium and the potassium levels are changing quite rapidly in the first week after birth. And also there can be changes when there's signs of inflammation or mastitis. And these, the ratio of the sort of sodium potassium can be an indication that milk volume is increasing or secretory activation is about to happen, has happened, and could also be a sign that there is inflammation mastitis going on in the breast. Now, your group are looking at a a tool that can test these levels. And I wonder how you can describe to us that how we would use this in practice, because I've got some ideas of of like, oh, that would be brilliant because of maybe we could do this. But I'd love to hear where the group is coming from and that research. Okay, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. So this little uh, sodium probe or potassium probe, so uh, there's one for each of them, um, is a tiny wee probe. It's called an iron selective probe. And at the end, like on the, it's about the size of your index finger, at the end you can flip up a little cap, put a drop of milk on, shut the lid, and you press a button and get a digital readout. Um, So... As you mentioned, if secretory activation or initiation of lactation occurs in the normal time frame, it would occur in the first two to three days. You'd see a big drop of sodium from something like 20 millimolars to almost almost nothing, really, a few millimolar. But we see a threshold, if we look in the literature and we look at our data, of around 16 millimoles. So you want to see it drop below that, some say 12. Um, and so we have obviously validated that against the big gold standard equipment and it's pretty um, specific, it's pretty reliable uh, and would be good you could just pop it in your pocket. Right? So what we're finding with tested it um, on pump-dependent women in the NICU who right from birth, so every two days, because we didn't want to overburden, now I think we should have done it every day, every two days, um, because someone thought there was an increase of mastitis in the NICU, Mm. and, of course, there wasn't. (laughs) Once you test something, it goes away. And then uh, so we were looking for, as you said, increases in sodium that were indicative of breast inflammation, of which we had a breast assessment as well. And so, but because we sampled for every two days, we could see, potentially see that rapid decrease in sodium that would tell us that the mum had initiated, so see if it was delayed. The other sneaky thing about sodium and a few other components are that they appear to be indicative of milk production. It's another project that's almost ready for publication. So here we have a molecule or an ion that could reflect initiation of lactation. Is the breast producing milk quickly in the right time frame? We have a marker of potential inflammation. We have potentially have a marker for milk production. So um, 
what we also found in the pump-dependent mothers was that the reading on day four was indicative, predictive, excuse me, predictive of the production on day eight. Now, by day eight, day 10, we should be really revving up and in the realms Mm. of full production. The literature clearly shows that within that 10 to 14-day period, milk production should be peaking at perhaps its peak. And that's one thing I think that we have to be much more aware of and waiting, waiting, waiting may well have a detrimental effect and we might miss that window. So if we have um, a mother who's pumping and she's not getting great volumes, we have high sodiums, that would be a red flag, right? So the the midwife or the, the nurse, neonatal nurse might go and say, okay, how often are we pumping? How long are we pumping for? Are we using the pump correctly because we don't have the baby? Basic first steps. Um, and then test again if volumes aren't coming up. Are we have do we have retained placenta? So so you know, very quickly. So you should see changes quite rapidly in sodium, as you know, those few days. Mm. Um, and then so we think it could be really useful in the vulnerable mothers that are in the NICU or women with pregnancy complications, particularly uh preeclampsia or high blood pressure. We're seeing those mothers have a huge risk of low production, seven times higher than your normal mother, and also postpartum hemorrhage. So sodium would be a good indicator as to whether they're coming down and the mother just has to hang in there and adapt to that period of time and if it would provide motivation that, look, it's coming down. Don't give up just yet. Keep pumping, supplement if necessary, and if that milk comes in, and we have seen that in the clinic, you know, it's it's helped um, inform the mother. Otherwise, it feels like she's not getting any feedback at all. And that was the thing with the ultrasound. Mothers loved that feedback. You know, that feedback, whether good or bad, gives them something to work on. Um, The other place we're using it, I gave um, Dr. Stuart Crosser a sodium probe for his birthday, and he's a nerd too, so he's like, oh, listen, what are we doing? So... um, we took the shotgun approach and Sharon and, and Stuart are busily testing every mum that comes through. And, of course, that stopped for a while and it's back on again now. And um, it was interesting to see the odd mother with a high sodium that they would just look at more closely at what had been going on. The mothers love it. They love having the mm. test. Mm. It, it makes it even more special. Um, and as I said, even if things don't turn out to be a full breastfeeding experience for that mum at that time, they'll often report to Stuart how much milk they're making. <gasps> I'm making 400 mils now. So, again, it offsets some of that grief and and in a sense, extends breastfeeding and breast milk and everything that breastfeeding provides for the dyad. So I think um, those are exciting things 
that are coming. And then also um, if we develop markers that are indicative of low milk production, then we may have a way of looking at the milk rather than uh, carrying out a full test way, 24-hour test way, if that's not feasible. That's exactly what I wanted to segue into was the test weighing because it's it's controversial in terms of when we when it's spoken around and about at coffee circles in um lactation conferences um because i know the group is it what (laughs) is it whispered it's whispered sometimes it's it's said very loudly um i've talked (laughs) quite a bit about test weighing in in education stuff because in my clinical practice, um, one of the hardest things is when you are dealing with a circumstance of low milk supply and you're putting everything in place. However, almost every single mother will ask me, but how much milk am I making? And I don't have the opportunity to test weigh every single baby. And also they don't have the opportunity to do that in their own homes with scales that are um, so specific and what's interesting is that you possibly have a mother who's in the period of triple feeding. So she is breastfeeding and pumping and topping up. And this is a very difficult, exhausting feeding plan that should have a time cap on it and good support. And this is not a forever plan. The point is that it will increase the milk supply. You start dropping off the additional extra expressing topping up. However, when you're not seeing that and you're not seeing changes at five days and you discuss with a mother who is still at that point of, no, I still want to give this a go. I'm still going on. But how much milk am I providing, Katie? The top ups are now between 60 and 90 mils. So how much is the baby getting from me? And what we go on at the moment is that, you know, between one and six months, the average is probably that they're drinking around 800 mils a day. However, it's an average. And I really get the impression that the women I work with want a specific that if we had a test that was easy to use, or I had a marker that could say, do you know what, today that sodium levels dropped, you we should start seeing higher volumes, or we're at day five in the NICU, and we start putting things into place. And then we're at day six, and that sodium still not dropped, then we start incorporating maybe let's bring in a Galactagog um, and see if that's going to work. And it gives us more of a rather than, like you said, a sit and wait approach of, oh, we'll give it another day or maybe another lactation consultant says, oh, we'll give it 48 hours. And I say, let's give it 12 hours. And we don't really know what's going on. That's where also I feel completely like dumbfounded and as well in the NICU, guessing how much milk babies are taking and drinking and then topping them up either with not enough or way too much. And, you know, those test ways have been vital in being able to be much more specific. And I just think we have all of these tests that can help. Some don't help and make things worse, as we know, in pregnancy. And um, But this seems to be like a tool that could really make lactation have more importance and be more specific. I, I, I I understand everything you're talking about. I think um, there's a great comment that it's usually not the tool that's the problem, it's the person using it. 
and the interpretations. So that's mm. where we really need to provide evidence. So we use it routinely. Um, it's essentially ubiquitous. If anybody comes to us with problems, we virtually almost always ask them to do a milk production. We have seen many kind of sad cases where mothers had an oversupply and she's been told she's not attaching her baby correctly. She's ended up with mastitis. And, and you know, knowing that would have informed the original care provider mm. in a way that would have changed practice. And I liken it to you would never put your hand on a forehead baby on our kids we have and said you've got a temperature without measuring it, right? So I think there are some approaches. People have used test weighing in the NICU successfully, as you know, and it, it really has to become the norm, right? And mm. if each breastfeed is test weighed until the baby takes, you know, up to 30 mils or whatever that number is, depending on the baby's preterm or term, where you know consistently they can take that, but maybe they're not take, they need more express milk to top up. So you don't have to keep doing it because I think there's a, a thought that women become addicted to it. And to be honest, it's very rare. We might have to wrestle the scales off a mum once or twice a year. So we are not concerned and no one can keep up test weighing if it's in the home constantly for every feed. So I think mothers want numbers simply to be reassured. So reassurance may come not with the 24-hour production but maybe in the NICU for the day. This is how much the baby's taking. And I think that's where we need clinical input. And when we start putting this into practice, be very clear about how we use it and then assess how that's that's going, as you say. The other thing I'd like to address is confidence. We've even published this data. Women do not lose confidence because they're test weighing. Um, already their confidence is, if they're asking for these things, in my opinion, their confidence isn't up there where you'd like it anyway. Um, and that might be detrimental. Um, but certainly none of our mothers lost, conf uh, lost confidence unless they had low milk production proven by the intake. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you would expect confidence to reduce because maybe they had a sleepy baby and they thought everything was going okay, um, but really we need to feed that baby more. I think. Milk intakes are incredibly informative for the mother and the clinician provided decisions are not made on one test way alone, but on Absolutely. multiple. Uh, and it can be used to help get things on track or understand what's going on. Um, and we forget about oversupply sometimes mm -hmm. yep uh so that mum that came to us was producing over a litre 1.2 litres so 
she didn't have any problems with supply, um, things like that. Um, I think the other time we've shown it in our published case studies is where things aren't going well, babies not back to birth weight by day 17. We instigate um, pumping. She gets a production up to 1.2 litres again. That must be a number Australians like. Uh, and then, but the baby's not taking it from the breast. So they're struggling to yeah. take the milk, but she can produce it. So we need to determine which is which, right? Exactly. So test weighing will tell you is it the baby or is it the mum's supply? Yep. And I think that's a skill we need to look at. Yeah. And then, so that baby in particular had a, a tongue tie that was snipped and then it was able to take the milk. And so she was only giving one bottle of express milk a day. But um, that's the beauty of that technique is you can figure out if the mother has um, hyperplasia. Yeah. Because what we typically see is they can only make half the amount of milk. And I don't know why it's half, but typically 300 to 400 mils. Mm -hmm. So if you see that and you have all the other signs, then it's reassuring to the mother to keep going, but this is unlikely to change. She sees a number. I can understand why that would be more helpful for her to carry on. And I think things that why I want to develop markers for milk production and easy things for this is that in cases where mothers can't make enough milk, we risk those mothers ceasing breastfeeding completely. That's the last thing we want them to yeah. do. We just want to reassure them that they're making as much as they can yes. and they can keep going without the stress of continually pumping you know, be able to enjoy her baby. Exactly. So I'm going to bring in the subject of nipple shields. As a midwife and lactation consultant, this, you know, up there with low milk supply. So that brings me to the kind of the second um, biggest reason that women stop breastfeeding before they want to is nipple pain. So nipple pain and low milk supply. So we've done low milk supply. Let's just look at nipple pain for, for a second. Um, and nipple shields are another controversially discussed topic in, in the lactation midwifery field. Um, I've worked in hospitals where they were sort of under lock and key from the lactation consultants and the midwives couldn't decide to use them themselves. I've worked in places where they brought in nipple shields immediately. I know of neonatal intensive care units where a nipple shield is introduced from the first for all feeds with preterm or um, vulnerable infants. And so it has this kind of um, history to it of nipple shields cause um, lower milk volumes to transfer to the baby. And um, they're a problem for breastfeeding in general. We shouldn't use them. This is the blanket approach. And oh, for me, I'm not going to say anything more. I I would just love to know what the group is looking at because you have looked at this because of the previous research really back from like late 80s, 90s. And if you could just tell yeah. us a little bit about what's why you had to look at it. Why I had to look at it, much the same reasons you have offered in the intro into nipple shields. So 
I had a PhD student looking at nipple pain um, and she did a little girl's questionnaire and some of the words on that are just horrific, like women are horrified and it's grating and cutting and they have these very awful kind of descriptors of pain. And she also converted her scores to compare to toothache, and which is horrendous, and pregnancy. And it became very apparent that the field is quite dismissive of pain, much like people that have back pain. It's not visible. It's sometimes marginalised. So that was the beginning. And that student also had some others that used nipple shields. Now, there were six of them, and it wasn't very controlled. But what she did was she measured the we measured the intraoral vacuum of those babies with and without the shields. And then we got them back about three months later to measure them again with or without the shields. So there were six. They all had really strong vacuums, the kind that would create bruises on your neck, which you would need to cover up. Mm. Those babies were doing that all the time, on every stage, without a nipple shield. When we put the nipple shield on, it, it in a sense normalised the vacuums down to about 150, 180, which is what we saw in our babies that were feeding with out causing pain. It's kind of that average, right? So there's two vacuums. Baby sucks onto the breast, we call it baseline vacuum, positions the nipple, and then it uses a cyclic vacuum in which we measure the peak. So this we got them back, and three mothers weren't using the nipple shield. The babies had essentially settled into a tolerable vacuum that was removing milk. The others were sucking even harder. Those mothers clearly couldn't breastfeed without the shield, yeah. despite having help. So that had happened. Then we got a mother who had a baby that pulled the nipple right through the nipple shield. So you could see the nipple pulling oh, through. I love Rachel's quite... face right now. Sorry. Yeah. I've got, I've got videos of babies and you can hear me and probably see me holding my breasts as this is happening. She was quite flat and, you know, seemed quite despondent because she was doing this. You know, this was about five months even by the time she got Whoa. to us. We tried everything. We cut the end off the nipple shield. We tried to vent the nipple shield. We tried. Those vacuums would double what the pump can apply, oh so up God. to 500 millimetres of mercury. If we took the shield off, the baby lowered the peak vacuum but raised the baseline, so virtually clamped onto that breast at something like close to 200 millimetres of mercury, which is two-thirds of what the pump can apply. So I was kind of on a bit of a... Tyrade there because I'd been in the NICU scanning preterm babies and I overheard someone say, oh, you're a redhead, you're probably going to be sore when you breastfeed, but tough it out. That combined with the epidemiological data saying that women that use nipple shields fed for shorter periods of time was completely logical to me, but no reason to withhold them from women that might need them. Mm -hmm. So what do we do here? We go back to basics. 
we started with another PhD student specifically looking at um, nipple shields. The good news is we're in a reasonable position where mothers would manage quite well. So, you know, lactation in Western Australia is pretty good. Um, the help. Um, but what we wanted to know was what were the vacuums with and without the shield? Could the baby indeed, as you say, remove enough milk to sustain lactation, which meant we measured their milk intake and the mother's milk production? And we also looked at the ultrasound sucking action, all right, because maybe people thought it changed that. Um, so in a nutshell, what we found is what we expected. Indeed, if they're introduced in a managed way with clinical support, um, mothers were able to sustain a normal milk production and breastfeed their babies and reduce the pain that they were feeling. Um, sometimes we were caught off guard because mothers are also quite well instructed to try without the shield for a few feeds as things progressed and some of the mothers stopped using them. The other thing that we found uh, was, interestingly, that the babies had the same vacuum with or without the shield, which we didn't expect after the stories I told you, which means the babies have somehow adapted and they're smart little cookies. They work out how to get the milk out. So um, that's, that's what we found. We also found that there are slight differences in the sucking action but they still use the parallel motion. They generate the vacuum in the same way and the shield slightly changes the distance from the um, hard soft tissue pellet junction and the tip of the shield. The other thing that we've noticed in our pumping studies was if the shield was too tight, you could limit milk flow. So in some preterm babies, we've done the same studies and found that people had uh, used a tight-fitting nipple shield which restricted milk flow for the preterm infants. So that's a critical thing to think of. Yeah, it's not the size of the baby's the mouth. But often no. in the preterms we go with, oh, the size of the nipple shield is, oh, that baby's got a tiny mouth. But actually that mum's got a nipple that's got to be squeezed in to that shield. Exactly. And what we see is compression of the ducts because, remember, the ducts compress under very low pressure and they also in the nipple expand under the milk ejection. So if you limit that, and we've seen that in our pumping studies, and you see that in the babies that feed, the term babies, they expand the nipple, the ducts expand and the milk flows out. So when that was refitted by Sharon Perella, the baby suddenly got more milk. Um, so the other thing that we did on this study was we were very uh, cognizant of having enough sizes to um, make sure that the nipple could expand at least four millimetres, which is something we gleaned from our other studies and some preliminary work we were doing. So, um, you know, I would hope that informs um, lactation consultants and midwives about the use of them. Certainly that's about as far as we went with those studies, but I recommended that, of course, they had support. And, of course, that they're, if they're used early, you really have to get into established lactation and a full milk production. So 
Um, and then I would caution that if you're using a shield and still not getting full milk production, just remember those antenatal screening things we're looking at, which are often pregnancy complications, obesity, diabetes, that we all know affect the pathways of milk production. Does the mother actually have any other risk factors? Because I think it's like any other diagnosis in any other profession. You have those differentials that could be um, possible causes. And whilst pain may be overriding all of those as the mother's main problem may actually be underlying causes of low milk production. Um, yeah. Absolutely. That's great. Can you guys please just invent some kind of device that I can then check all the baby's sucking vacuums? Um, I've been asking for one of those for a long, long time. Me too. It would be so handy if we could have one that was just on the market. Of course, any tool comes with it potential to cause further complications. But mm. like you say, it's the user. But to be able to give someone some feedback of, you know, those women who maybe you've tried everything and yet they possibly then think, am I am I so weak that my nipples are sore and I I can't cope with it? And then you get to be able to say, do you know what? The the levels of vacuum that your baby's creating is this. So let's put a plan in place for you. But also to just have this kind of <sighs> reassurance moment of this is how much milk you're providing, uh, producing if needed. Obviously, if everything is straightforward, we don't need these tools. But birth, pregnancy complications, those kind of factors that we've talked about and the implications of what I talk about a lot of yeah the potential impact on low milk supply and problems occurring or challenges occurring. This would just help in those early days, I think, alleviate so much questioning, so much stress. Also to, like you say, it's about reassuring the mother that she's doing a bloody good job. And, you know, okay. women, for me, women who have these challenges they work so ridiculously hard and may not ever get a full milk supply. And they should never be the ones who feel the guilt or the, or the oh, I didn't do enough. Because the woman who's probably had a physiological birth and the baby's just crawled to the breast, gone on and never thought any more of it. It's kind I mean, it has its challenges, of course, but it's easy compared to all the other, you know, the weeks and the weeks of going in and having lactation support. And for those mm. women, I just think it would be really nice if we had a tool that we could say, do you know what, this is what you're doing and helps them understand how fantastic they're doing, what they can expect for the future potentially, and just that reassurance. So, yes, please, can you invent that? <laughs> yes, and I think we need to know which babies are the great pretenders, the ones with the low vacuums mm. as well, because they just don't. Mm. Um, take enough milk and sustain production. So our preterm babies, some of them come up to term levels close to term age. Um, others just ever, don't ever make it. And, you know, it may be a consequence of the preterm birth and development or low tone. Um, and I, I think there's too much of a wait and see for that, for yes. that population as well. They're sent home just fully breastfeed, it'll all kick in. Um, 
but really that's where the chest weighing would help. Mm. Um, and then that gauge, as you say, it, it's complicated because we use a fluid-filled tube. If you use an air-filled tube, it's it's not so reliable. Um, so and thinking of those things, so translation of that evidence is, you know, if people can think that they need a vacuum to remove the milk, high will hurt, low will mean low production, and sometimes high hurts that much and compression is so bad that milk flow might be disturbed as well. So um, that's where we we are really aiming often to describe the variation in the successful non-eventful population that gives us a comparison back to that. And I, I think that also brings me, I was thinking about our studies where we looked at day three to day 21. Again, I did that because people said babies had to learn to breastfeed, that in all reality they come out knowing how to suck. Mm. Um, unless there is, of course, some other palsy or, or or issues going on. So therefore using that as a reason for delays in milk production is probably not wise. It's either the strength of the vacuum and that may build up and may not, depending on what else is going going on. Um, but I, th- I think you know we're getting there. There's a lot more interest in developing tools, and you know I think the reason we're on this, and there has been some resistance to evidence-based care because there's this belief that we just have to get mothers breastfeeding, and the rest will take care of itself. But really, the metabolic dysfunction and the environment we live in. Those rates of those complications are going up, therefore lactation difficulties are going up, ability to make milk production is going up Mm -hmm. um, and make enough milk. So I think if clinicians within that field can see those tools just as they would a temperature gauge, you know, thermometer, a urine dipstick, these are to empower women and clinicians they won't undermine confidence if we are careful and strategic and we test the way we use them. So I think that's fantastic. I think that's a great um, rounding up point of bringing that together and looking to the future and seeing what the group's doing and, and the work. And I'm hopeful for the future that we can get these kind of messages and and techniques out there. I mean that's all new to me. So I didn't even I didn't even know about that technology. So that's you've taught me something. <laughs> it's been good. And I think one of the issues around why I guess midwives are not necessarily getting this information or or are looking for it is a lot to do with the setup of the system. So a lot of midwives aren't even seeing your women. They don't see them antenatally. They might see them on the postnatal ward for Mm -hmm. a few hours. And then the woman's home trying to sort Mm -hmm. out any breastfeeding problems that arise without anybody even checking in to Mm -hmm. assess. Whereas 
you know, if we had continuity of care more effectively embedded, mm. then that would really give us a lot more power and probably motivation because, you know, you're going to have more motivation in the antenatal period to talk about breastfeeding and kind of talk about what's normal, what's not, and how can we support you if you're then going to pick up the problems at the other side than if you are never going to see that woman again. So, you know, I think we need to really kind of sort out maternity care system step one <laughs> mm, absolutely mm. well you know how I told you about when I started at a, a place and I was doing home visits and I'd come back in to the hospital and the midwife would say to me so what have you been doing all day drinking tea I mean yes I did drink tea <laughs> but it was that lack of awareness of that actually there's often an increase in the amount of support that women need when they've gone home in 24 hours or 48 mm -hmm. hours because milk has come in mm -hmm. or hasn't, there's changes, the nipples have suddenly got excruciatingly painful, blah, 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 baby's lost weight. All of these things happen in that first week or so. And for me to be then sort of berated by midwives going, yeah, so what do you do all day? It was like, actually quite a lot. I never get a lunch break. It's really, really bloody busy. That's an Australian thing. So when I came here, it was like, it was seen as an additional thing. So the, the midwives visiting was like, oh, we've got this special service where midwives go and visit women and their homes. It's like, mm, is that not? Like from the UK, it's like, yeah, that's actually what midwives do. <laughs> it's not an add-on. It's part of the part of the role of the midwife. Yeah. And do you think um, there could be other disciplines? You know, I think. We we are making an effort to try and make inroads into the medical field as well. Their education is oh God, yeah. fairly low to non-existent. And, again, the basics, sometimes I think we try too hard to mm. tell them everything. It's what are the key things you need to say and these are the ones you should not say um, or assume because it defaults back to experience. And I think that's where the evidence-based care is so important is to use the evidence but also individualise care, right? So yes. it's hmm. that dance between, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen a popular positioning and attachment technique, particularly the one that was across the body and the mum was wider than the baby and the legs didn't go <laughs> and then she would drop her shoulder and mm. the baby would be trying to swallow while it's down and I'm trying to push her other shoulder down as <laughs> so I'm scanning the baby. It's like this is this isn't working. Um so and and mothers will keep doing that. So this like continuity of care and time course change, the babies grow and change and what do you expect to change? Frequency of feeding might, you know, shorten. Um, you know, you should see this much weight gain. But I think that's where, Rachel, you know, you're talking about an extension of that and, and involving everyone that comes into contact with the mum mm -hmm. for those basics. We need to reclaim breastfeeding back into the community. If everybody... Yes understands the basics and how to support a woman to stop breastfeeding and continue breastfeeding then we can use lactation consultants and the technology for those women who 
are struggling, who need that, then we refer to the lactation consultant. But I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, I think we've got in a situation now with midwifery of, oh, that's a breastfeeding thing. That's a lactation consultant. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah yeah. to that. Not what you, I'm just shutting because <laughs> I said that the wrong form. <laughs> I mean, uh, hallelujah to bringing it into the community. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now I'll say hallelujah to that <laughs> in the right hallelujah. place. <laughs> Did I tell you about our RCT? No. So we've got two groups of high-risk women for low supply. And we're intervening on one with a combination of bundle of care. So they um, get flagged, they get randomised, they have a consult before birth. They're given a pump before birth so that if they need one, they've got one, a hospital-grade one. Um, And then when they give birth, they get telephone support from our lactation not Sharon, another Karen. So she uh, provides telephone support every two to three days. Um, The mum also logs what she's doing for two weeks. She does a milk production at two weeks, and I better not get this mixed up with the other one, and six weeks, and then we follow her to three, six, and 12 months, and we do wellbeing surveys as well. So we're help, help, trying to combine interventions that have had small, significant increments in success with early intervention in the high-risk mothers to see if we can extend breastfeeding and increase milk production compared to the control group that will have standard care. So that is super exciting. Yeah. That's great. And we'll have milk composition as well. So Exciting stuff. I look forward to reading that and finding out all about (laughs) it. And we should plug the symposium that you guys have got this year, at the end of the year. I will put the details in the show notes. I believe it's November. I can't quite remember the date. Look at I? It's November something. It's so. November. It'll be in the show notes. It's early November. <laughs> so it's a more than milk symposiums of lactation science. Um, we had a great turnout for our first one. We had 168 registrants and um, we published the abstracts. So they'll be coming out in proceedings. So they'll be free, available online. Um, and you get to see the best of the West, but also uh, some international and national speakers. So Fantastic. we're planning on growing that, having workshops that will accompany it and um, bringing together clinicians and scientists and really invading scientific and clinical world. Love it. Sounds fabulous. Donna, it has been an absolute Pleasure to have you here with us and filling our brains with so much stuff. It is really unbelievable what you guys are working on down there. So thank you for coming in and being with us today. Thank you. I hope you found a few golden nuggety nuggets in the show today. Please don't press pause, but instead scroll on down on your podcast app. Yep, that's it. 
down there and pop a review and maybe a few stars to make our eyes twinkle with glee. For more on breastfeeding and lactation content, head on over to my website where my course is. And for courses and books from Rachel, you can find everything in the links below. So all I got to say now is see you next time. And I can't wait. Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.